Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning. Open our hearts, and may this be for your glory and your glory alone. Amen. Well, good morning, church. My name is Shana. I'm the family ministry director here at LCC. I am usually upstairs with our kids, but today, as Mike said, he and I are switching places, um, which I'm pretty excited about. I just really love that we have a senior pastor here who enjoys spending time with our kids and wants to spend time with our kids. And it's also a joy when we get to spend time with different parts of our, our church family. You know, a little variety. We, we like that in life. Variety is good. So I'm just happy to be here with you this morning. We have been making our way through the Gospel of Luke. We're on a journey with Jesus towards Jerusalem. And it seems to me that as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, people are becoming more and more hostile to the message that he has to share, especially religious leaders. And while we've seen before that in other places in Luke, Pharisees and scribes have responded open-mindedly even to the message of Jesus, in this passage, we are going to see outright hostility and explosive exchange over, once again, the dinner table, which is another context that Luke really likes to use. So while I didn't read aloud the parts of chapter 14 that come before the scene, they are important to the context here, so I'm just going to give a quick summary of kind of what's happened before Jesus finds himself at the table of this Pharisee. So in the first part of Luke um, 11, um, Jesus teaches us about prayer, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, and then in verse 14, Jesus kind of opens up by casting out a demon from a man. Um, and then this man is healed from the physical malady that the demon had caused from him, muteness, um, maybe blindness. And after this show of power, Jesus has encounters with four different groups, um, a crowd, a woman, a bigger crowd, and then the Pharisees and the scribes that we just read about. These groups change, but Jesus' message is the same to all of them. So after Jesus cast out the demon, the crowd has two challenges for him. Is he a false prophet? And where does this authority come from? Where does this power come from to cast out demons? Interestingly, the fact of the miracle isn't questioned, but the source of the authority is. So people in the crowd actually accuse Jesus of working under the power of Beelzebul, or Satan, to cast out demons. And this accusation places Jesus as a subject of Satan. It marginalizes his effectiveness and his influence. It makes, it makes it so that they don't have to take him seriously, and it classifies him as a false prophet. Jesus responds to this accusation by pointing out something that seems very obvious, but, you know, what, what can you do? Um, that the power to overpower demons is actually to work against Satan, the one and the one who sent them. If he was working for Satan, why would he do something that was actually working against Satan? Oh, and also, by the way, the casting out of the demon shows in and of itself that Jesus already has power over Satan because he's shown that he has power over the one that Satan sent. So there's a lot of imagery here of competing kingdoms, of battlefields, of plunder, and commanders of different forces. Jesus tells the story of a house being cleaned out of a demon, um, and then this house is left empty and unguarded, and the demon returns, bringing more demons along with it, making the situation worse than before. But Jesus draws a clear line in the sand here to the people he's talking to. In verse 23, he says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You are not with me, you are against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
At this point in the crowd around Jesus is growing, probably because they'd heard about the miracle, they want to see more. Um, and earlier in the crowd, the crowd had asked Jesus for more of a sign. They said, give, give us a sign where your power comes from. Apparently the sign of casting out demons was not enough for them. Um, Jesus continues to rebuke the crowds for its accusation and its request for a sign, calling them an evil generation. He brings up Jonah and the Ninevites. He brings up Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, which are two Old Testament stories that his audience would have been really familiar with, reminding his audience how these Gentiles, the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba, were able to see God and respond to the wisdom of God. And yet here, someone greater than Jonah or Solomon have come, but the Jewish people cannot see it. They can't see the wisdom in front of them. From here, Jesus talks a little bit about eyes and bodies and light and darkness, and he makes this contrast of this light, kingdom of light and this kingdom of darkness and the darkness and light that's inside of our bodies that comes out of our eyes and vice versa. At this point, his tone kind of gentles a little. It's as if he's trying to talk to those in the crowd who might actually be interested in faithfulness, who might have questions about what obedience looks like. They might be wondering, how is health possible? How does a person who wants to be with Jesus and not against him choose the right side? How do we give our cleaned out house over to Jesus to guard and fill with light? We're given the answer from an unlikely source. A woman, which is unusual, um, speaks out from the crowd, responding to Jesus not with animosity but with praise. Um, and she calls out to Jesus, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts on which you nursed. Yes, that's what I just said. <laughs> Young people, the Bible has no holds barred, so get used to it. You're going to be fine. Now, this woman is actually giving Jesus a, a big compliment for this time, okay? It would have been understood by the Jewish audience to be really a very nice compliment because women in this society gained honor primarily by marrying well and having children. If a woman's child goes on to be powerful or wealthy or famous or they gain status or honor, that woman is also blessed um, because she, the status of her child is also placed on her and her honor and her status increases with that of her children. So motherhood, therefore, in the first century was a defining factor for the flourishing of a woman. So basically, Jesus, you're super cool and you're so cool, in fact, that your mother is super cool, too. Check, check. For Jesus, however, even this woman's well-intentioned praise is still just a little off the mark. So he responds with one of his kind of typical, gentle redirections, and he says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. In this simple redirection, Jesus has turned yet another, we're seeing this a lot in the Gospels, yet another cultural assumption upside down. It is not actually generational relationship or physical descent that brings blessings. This is a drastic change to the Jewish worldview, my friends, drastic, and has a lot of implications that we see throughout the New Testament, but two stand out here in this very specific context. So first, Israel's privileged position as God's people is not a given. Blessing comes to those who hear God's word and obey it, which is why the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba and any Gentile, including, by the way, the Gentiles that Luke is writing to, writing his gospel to, 
can be a part of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is wide open to anyone who would hear the word of God and obey it. Anyone can choose to stand with Jesus, regardless of physical or generational relationship. Um, so that's assumption overturned, number one. Second, and perhaps the freedom that tugs at my heart a little more in this passage, is the freedom that women would have hopefully experienced then and today at being given this key knowledge. You know, if you rewind Luke way back to chapter 1, Mary, Jesus' mother, is told she has found honor and favor in the eyes of God. She's told that she is blessed, but not because she will have a son and not because her son will go on to do really great things. She has found honor and favor in the eyes of God because she has heard the word and obeyed God, because she is a good servant. This is a deeply countercultural thing for the women in the first century, and it changes so much about how women should have been seen and treated. And Jesus does this often for women in the New Testament, actually. Lots of cultural norms turned upside down. But the very specific point here from this passage is that women, our value and our worth is not bound up in motherhood. Whether we have many children or we have no children, whether our children are living the life we would like them to live or they're not, whether they have brought us joy or pain, our standing with Jesus does not rise or fall with motherhood. It depends only on obedience to the Lord. Of course kids are a gift. I'm a family pastor. I love kids. And kids are a gift to all of us, not just moms. And of course we might have regrets and there might be missing pieces, missing pieces and dashed hopes and great joy and great sorrow. Being a parent or not being a parent can bring all of these experiences. This scripture here is not a commentary on what makes a good mother. Though of course these ideas of obedience and of being filled with light and darkness have implications on how we live every part of our lives, right? The point here is that we are freed from whatever status our cultural norms do or do not give to mothers, including, by the way, our American Christian cultural norms. We are freed from comparing ourselves to one another. We are freed from whatever ideal we have in our heads for ourselves or for our kids. And women, we have a place of honor in God's kingdom. Period. Full stop. No further explanation needed. I'm tempted to just like end it there and revel a little bit. <laughs> but even after all of that, we still haven't gotten to this explosive part of, of this chapter. So let me sum all of that up. To this big crowd we've been hanging out with so far, Jesus' message is this. It's an invitation to follow God, to be obedient, to live a life filled with light, and it's an invitation that's open to everyone not just those with privileged status. So speaking of those with privileged status, Jesus is now away from the crowd. Now we're to the scripture that we read this morning. Jesus is now away from the crowd, but the themes of the conversation continue. He's invited to a meal by some Pharisees and scribes who are probably hoping to continue some of the conversation that was taking place with the crowd. But if they are expecting Jesus to defer to their privileged status, they're going to be greatly disappointed. 
Instead, Jesus outright provokes them. He goes straight to the table without washing his hands. Now, perhaps post-COVID, this scandalizes us as well a little bit more than it used to, but <laughs> what we need to realize is at the time, ritual washing was a huge part of the purity worldview of Judaism. Washing hands before a meal was an important daily ritual of purity, one of many. And for Jesus not to do this both offended his host and marked him as an outsider of the community. And he did this, on, he knew what he was doing. He did this on purpose. Purity is so central to the worldview of the Pharisees. And while it is a socially constructed institution, it is rooted in how the community is seeking to understand God. There's a clear line to how they're trying to understand God and the ritual rites of purity um, that they follow in their daily lives. So it would appear here that Jesus is not all that interested in polite conversation with his hosts today. He uses the imagery of tableware that is clean on the outside, but is still dirty on the inside. And this is a commentary on the whole religious condition of the Pharisees. The inside and the outside of the dish matter, but the Pharisees only care about the outside. Sounds like how most of our kids do chores, right? In his commentary on Luke, David Jeffrey tells us that Jesus teaches a purity that is radically different and raises the level of hostility at this dinner table and at this conversation dramatically. What is at stake, Jeffrey's writes, is how we understand the very nature of God and what is therefore a faithful response to God. At this table, where daily rituals take place, Jesus confronts their interpretation of the law and the maintenance of purity, and he labels it as evil. It's a pretty solid line to draw in the sand. The Pharisees are exposed as houses of darkness, as bodies of darkness whose eyesight and behaviors are affected by that darkness. All of the imagery that Jesus has used before in this chapter and that we just talked about comes to a head here. It's almost as if he meant it for this moment. So Jesus condemns the Pharisees in, in four different ways. One, their concern for ritual purity overlooks the need for integrity or connection between the inner self and public behavior. That both matter. Two, they're full of greed. It's just what he says. Three, they neglect God and justice for neighbors. And four, they love to be the center of attention. They desire status and honor in the public square, but they neglect the love of God. What are the results of these actions, Jesus says? In striving to maintain purity, the Pharisees have actually made themselves impure. And what's more, they have actively endangered the purity of others, of those around them, like an unmarked grave that someone doesn't even know about, and they walk right over it and are made impure. After the pronouncement of these woes on the Pharisees, I don't know if you noticed, there were a lot of woes there. It's a serious thing. After the pronouncement of these woes on the Pharisees, a scribe speaks up and tells Jesus that they are also insulted at these words. Jesus does not apologize. <laughs> he goes on to pass a woe or two over the scribes as well, just handing out woes. Woe to you, woe to you, woes for everybody. Far from helping people be faithful to God, 
far from helping people present themselves as people known for hearing and doing the word of God, they have in fact burdened God's people. The tradition and the legal obligations have not assisted in the faithfulness of the Jewish people. Jesus says that the scribes will continue Israel's historic trend of silencing God's messengers. In fact, Jesus accuses the scribes of preferring their prophets dead because then they can safely ignore parts of their message but still prop up their prophets on a pedestal. We never do that. This entire project of the Pharisees and the scribes has achieved an end that is diametrically, that means opposite, diametrically opposed to that for which it has been intended. These experts, these leaders, were meant to pull back the veil on the meaning of God's law, but their efforts had the opposite effect. They held back the key of knowledge, keeping people away from God's message of freedom, and they kept people in bondage. Jesus couldn't be more clear or straightforward here. He's not dancing around or mincing words. These people are not fit to provide leadership for Israel. They appeared mostly for themselves, they are not interested in true obedience for themselves or for Israel. There's a phrase I learned a few years back. It still kind of tickles me. I think it popped up in one of my podcasts. Um, probably, if you know me, you know I listen to way too many podcasts. And someone probably, they dropped this phrase, and it's always stuck in my mind. This phrase, Disney princess theology. Disney princess theology. I know. Give me side eye. That's fine. All you like. I thought this was hilarious, okay? It's this idea that generally, as people read or engage with a story, we always tend to put ourselves in the place of the princess and never in the villain. It's silly, but it's memorable. This chapter is one where I might be very tempted to do exactly that. I am definitely the princess in the crowd. <laughs> Maybe in need of a little gentle correction from Jesus, but there's no way I am the Pharisees or the scribes, because those villains are awful, and I'm not a villain. But we cannot allow ourselves to do this. This chapter is an invitation from Jesus to do some serious self-examining of ourselves, of our larger communal and societal systems. And we must do this, because if we are not for Jesus, then we are against him. That was clear. We must examine the outside and the inside, because God made both, and both matter. The final part of this chapter is a serious indictment on the religious leadership of Israel. We need to put ourselves in the story as the villain, as these religious leaders, and ask God to reveal to us where we have put up barriers that keep others from following God, where we have allowed traditions or cultural norms to become more important than the things God says are most important, like loving God, and justice for our neighbor, and caring for the poor. Where are we as people, as a church, as institutions, as a community, filled with darkness instead of light? In what ways do we prop up certain prophets and heroes but ignore their actual message, believing what we want them to have said instead? Where do we do that with Jesus? As I asked myself all of these questions this last week, a few things kind of surfaced to my mind. These thoughts are not comprehensive of all of the issues and all of the places that might come up in response to these questions. 
but they are what I, as a family minister, have dwelt on these past few days. I would love to hear what surfaces in your mind in response to these questions, because I'm sure they're different, which is great. So the first thoughts that surfaced for me were ones of memories, lots of memories. Of that time, <laughs> of that time when we got in trouble as youth leaders, because we were letting these kids from the neighborhood show up and do skateboarding tricks on the rails in our, in our parking lot. I was very young, by the way, at this point. Very young leader, just a speck of an intern. It was the 90s. Skateboarding is just what we did. All right, don't judge me. The rails had just gotten new paint, and some people in the church were upset that the paint was getting damaged by our skateboarding crowd. While us as leaders could understand the desire to hold on to the nice-looking, brand-new paint, we also knew that we could very easily drive these students away by communicating that new paint was more important than them, that they were a nuisance. This was a message that they already received in many areas of their life and, frankly, was probably what had brought them to us in the first place as they searched for a place to belong, and we had no intention of repeating this message. We didn't believe in it anyways. So one of our longtime volunteers, and I mean longtime volunteers, like Joe had probably been teaching middle school Sundays class before I was even born. Long time. He'd been on committees at this church. He had been an elder. He could hear and understand the dismay over the rails, but he could also put the greater values where they belonged in preserving this opportunity that God had brought us to build relationships with these students. He stepped into being a bridge between these groups. He kindly explained to one why we wouldn't be barring our skateboarders from the parking lot. But then he also offered to repaint the rails when they were getting too bad. And then at our next youth group, he stood up on stage and he told our students that this next Saturday he'd be at the church painting the rails and if anyone would like to join him, they were welcome. After all, he said, we are the ones who are using them the most. There was no condemnation towards our students, just an invitation to join in the work of the family. At another church I was at, a student showed up to youth group wearing a t-shirt that had Charlie Brown on it, looking like Charlie Brown does, but instead of Charlie's classic good grief, it said good reef, and Charlie was holding a joint. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny. Um, so, Truett, my husband, who is also my own longest running volunteer, because he's always been involved in most of my ministry in Denver's, endeavors, um, Truett goes to hang out with this student, and he asks him about his shirt. Hey, man, that's quite a shirt. <laughs> Um, and, and this young man proceeds to tell him, yeah, I probably shouldn't have worn it to church, but my brother just moved out, and it was a gift from him. We could have asked him to change his shirt. We could have sent him home. We could have called a parent. But then we might have lost out on this really sweet relational moment of the student basically sharing that he misses his brother. Building that relationship in that moment was the more important thing. Okay, but shirts. <laughs> so much commentary about shirts over my years of ministry with young people. <laughs> These stories might seem a little silly. After all, we here at LCC would never send a student or a kid away from our shirt because of something they wear. We would never do that. Actually, I don't think we would. I'm not being sarcastic. But these stories serve as a microcosm to help illustrate deeper and bigger things. 
things that we here at LCC are not immune to, but that in our pride, we might just miss because of how good we might think we're doing. Yes, it's true that different generations can have very different values about what is appropriate and what is offensive, what is important tradition and what is not. It's also true that both the inside and the outside matter to God. He made both and the two are connected. Outward behavior can be evidence of what is internal and vice versa. The point of the woes given here to the Pharisees and scribes is not that outward behavior doesn't matter at all. It's that when we make some things about outward behavior more important than what God says are important behaviors, and then when we also emphasize those less important outward behaviors as true obedience to God, we have created barriers for others to hear and do the word of God faithfully. I'm going to say that one more time because I confused myself. When we make some things about outward behavior more important than what God says are important outward behaviors, and then when we also emphasize those as being more important behaviors for obedience and faithfulness, we have created barriers for others to hear and do the word of God. Woe unto us when we do this. So let me just close with this this morning. That t-shirt, that parking lot rail, whatever it represents in your life, it's an opportunity to be curious about someone, to grow in relationship with someone who, regardless of their behavior, has just as much of an open invitation to belong to the kingdom of God as you do. A few weeks ago, a number of our students stood right up here on this short little stage thing that we got going on up here, and they told us stories about how much joy they found in overcoming their own preconceived notions about their fears and their fears about homeless people. They told us about some of the people they met and how amazing those people turned out to be. That t-shirt could be just the launching pad God needs to bring you into a new and unexpected or unlooked-for relationship, a relationship where hopefully all of us are seeking to help one another hear and obey the word of God. I just got to say, I need your help. We need help from one another. Because the most important things that God is calling us to do, they're hard. Loving our enemies is a lot harder than wearing the right thing to church. Which is probably why we're so tempted to replace the most important things with the not very important things. I would just encourage us to remember this morning that this story in Luke is still incomplete. In Jesus' death and resurrection, we have grace, we have hope, we have forgiveness for our sins. We can find health and life. In light of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, a life lived in obedience is a joy-filled response. And it's a joy that we can share in together. And a joy that we can share in together this morning as we approach the communion table. So let's pray um, as we move to a time for communion. God, thank you that you are so clear in your word. 
God, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to the ways that we might be more like the Pharisees than we think. God, we do not want to hinder obedience to you. We ourselves want to strive for obedience, and we want to help one another, and we want to help our kids and young people strive for obedience. So God, we surrender these things to you. We pray that you would reveal them to us, and we pray that the rest of our time this morning would be for your glory alone. Amen.